With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. It is the Anfield Wrap Weekend. There's a great deal to come. We're looking at the Irish Festival. There's a Dead Pigeon Gallery exhibition at Home Baked. We'll be looking at that as well. Jane Lawless coming in for that Emma Smith Irish Festival. Chris Waugh coming up on the Longstaff Brothers. Uh, we've got our own Longstaff, but I've been assured he is not related. Uh, but suddenly the world's full of Longstaffs. What are you going to do about it? But in front of me to look back on Jurgen Klopp's reign at Liverpool and look ahead, hopefully, to the sunny uplands of the future. I have got, I am joined by the impressive Adam Smith, the impish Joel Rabinovitz, and I have got the impresario himself Ian Salmon <laughs> all are here in front of us for the Anfield Raps weekend of this week so hope hope you've been looking forward to it whatever you're up to this weekend we will hopefully set the weather for you in a positive way and Ian Salmon I remember when Jurgen Klopp came in and I remember muttering darkly after a after a recording of a show to Rob to Rob Gutman saying saying these exact words something well not these exact words something on the lines of all these bastards who are delighted he's here are going to soon be suffering when he has the same issues with the infrastructure around him. If anything, Klopp's greatest achievement has been not just what we've seen on the pitch, but also the absolute significance of the change off the pitch, which he's been a massive, massive part of. Yeah, it is completely. He's changed the entire culture, the entire nature of the club. He's managed to change... I'll get on to one high horse in a second, but he's managed to change the mentality of... A sizable majority of the fans. Um, there's some people who still need to sort their heads out when things go against us for 30 seconds. Um, but the way he's come in, and there was a very enlightening article by Tony Evans last week, I think it was The Independent, um, about about Brendan Rodgers just before coming back, obviously, with Leicester, um, which pointed out some of the issues that were going on off-field that we didn't know about. And I think Jürgen's desire and happiness to work with a sporting director and to work closely has been a major change in what we do. Um, his manager has allowed himself to be persuaded on footballers that have turned out to be the greatest footballers that we've ever bought. You know, it's, We know the transfer committee were instrumental in persuading him to, to, buy, to go for Mo and that has obviously worked out quite well for us all. And he's the first person to admit that kind of thing. So it's that infrastructure and also the fact that he does work closely with the owners. He's a manager who doesn't seem to fall out with the owners in any way that is visible. Uh, he seems to have a very good relationship with Mike Gordon, is it? Mm, Mike yep. Gordon. Um, so he, he's built, um, after a period, of, I think we'll look back at, of about a decade of no real steadiness, he's built something that is genuinely likely to be a dynasty there's for me in his first season his first half part season three three quarters two thirds of a season Joel there's three standout moments now that sort of that echo the first one is the West Brom um, going to the crowd uh, at the end of the match taking the players to the cop at the end of a 2-2 draw which received ire from some quarters including the aforementioned Tony Evans there is the there is the I can say all that about Tony I'm, I'm chatting to him next week I'm interviewing him uh, there is the also the for me, the walkout, the Sunderland game, again, another 2 all draw uh, where the crowd walks out on 77 minutes against the the, the, the price rises. And then there's the Dortmund 4-3. And I, I've always thought, I've long been of the view that if you Klopp, you know, we, we, we always think appraisals go one way. But if you're Klopp, you're able to walk in in the summer and say, 
can we have more of things like the Dortmund 4-3 and less of them walking out on me, please? And what do we need to do to fix this? Yeah, I think those three are all massive. I think I'd add one more to that as well, which was the Palace game. I think it was a month before the West Brom. Before West Brom, when he, when he said he when felt he lonely. basically gave the crowd a bit of a bodying afterwards and said, yeah, I felt really alone in that moment. Everyone started leaving. I think we lost 2-1 on the day. Um, and then that's why the West Brom one was so significant because even though on the face of it a 2-2 draw at home to West Brom is nothing to be celebrated as such it wasn't a celebration it was you've helped us get over the line here it was a 96th minute equaliser I think in the end Divock yep Um, and so from that moment onwards it's kind of been a gradual process of rebuilding Anfield into what it is now 44 games unbeaten in the league I think it is now I think you can trace that all back to that West Brom game uh, the Dortmund one as well is massive because I think you can make a strong argument that Man City, Roma, Barcelona, none of those nights happen if Dortmund doesn't happen the way it does. I think that was the first one where we really got to see what Klopp's team could do um, when the crowd is up like that. Because um, it was it 2-0 after nine minutes yeah, um, and we scored three times in the last 25 or half an hour or so and in kind of the grand scheme of things in terms of what we've achieved over the four years that probably ranks quite lowly com- compared to what we've done since um, but that was very much a starting point and the fact that we didn't get over the line in the final was kind of neither here nor there really because we got to those two finals in his first kind of three quarters of a season we weren't really expected to achieve anything I think you can distill that whole kind of first season for Klopp down to a process of working out which players he wanted to keep moving forwards and what were going to be part of his plans which ones he wanted to let go which is why we saw the likes of Benteke and Sacco left and then every season since then, it's been kind of an incremental process of adding more quality, keeping the players that we have got and also making the ones uh, that we did have better. So, In terms of the, the off the field stuff, it was always interesting to me how he, 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 he pulled his path through the Sunderland, the walkout conversation really, really cleverly. At no point did he criticise the ownership of the club, but at no point did he defend them. Uh, at no point did he defend the decision. At no point did he... In not signalling aside, he signalled aside, but he but he, he never got himself into any trouble. Um, and I've always thought, I've long been sort of of the view that if you're him, and it's very difficult to be Jurgen Klopp and to be pushing the agendas that we talk about there around the Palace game, the West Brom game, what to come, the Dortmund game, if people are walking out, if you've if 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 the core supporter sufficiently. I can't quite think of the right word really because it wasn't as though we there was a, a feeling of sort of disengagement it was the opposite of anything but there was that sort of I think that that if you're him that gives you a hell of a lot to take to the ownership take to the hierarchy of the club to say we've just got to be better at all this I can only do so much with the footballers you've got to keep these people happy along with me yeah and I think I think the biggest thing that Klopp's brought in general is the confidence of being a somebody who's very good at what they do. Because I think Rodgers always had self-belief, but also I think he had a a need to prove himself all the time. Yeah. And that dominated, I think, his his management at the club, his, his handling of certain Biggest opportunity of his everything. life. And, exactly. and the defining opportunity, not for the Klopp, Dortmund's the defining opportunity, Liverpool is the opportunity that you get after the yes, defining opportunity. And you and where you can go one step further and you you know you can make yourself immortal and all those sorts of things. You know, that's what you could do at Liverpool. If we, if we win the title under Klopp, he will go down with the big I mean he's already gone down with the biggest managers, but if we win the title, then he's better than than all of the managers we've had since Kenny Dalglish. 
So, you know, that, that he, he, he's better than all of them because he matches Benitez and goes one step further if we win the title. So he's got an incredible opportunity, but he's he is he's the sort of person that never needed to prove himself. But he had the footballing chops to mean that FSG never needed to question him. Whereas they did with Rodgers. And but but FSG also didn't necessarily have the confidence in themselves to to be able to say to Rodgers, no, you need to work with a footballing director. No, you, you, you need to do this. And if they had maybe his time at the club would have been a little bit more successful. But because neither of them were in charge, because they both sort of felt they were in charge, there was never a cohesion there. Whereas Klopp's happy to walk in and go, Yeah, you do you do all the finance stuff. I don't care. I don't care. You you tell me who we can buy and I'll make it work. I'll figure out which of those players I can make work you tell me what we can afford to do and I can figure out how to make it work but I'm telling you that from a footballing point of view you need to keep these people happy and that being in a being in the sort of situation where we're having walkouts where we're having protests we're having all that sort of stuff that's not conducive to anybody and what's it for and he's able to to do that with a confidence that FSG have to listen to him because he knows what he's talking about and that kind of dual thing going on then that they could respect him but he respected them as well and it never really felt like that was the case with Rodgers you never for even you know even ignoring all the Tony Evans stuff that's come out recently you never really felt like there was mutual respect between the the, the two sets if you like whereas from the second clock came in and he, you know and again he yeah he, you're absolutely right with the walkout he never took a side but whenever he got the opportunity he was praising the owners he said what a good, how good they were what how, how brilliant they were what great what a great job they were doing blah, blah, blah. He, he was always saying that sort of thing but he was obviously behind the closed doors saying to them listen what's the point what what what, what are you getting a couple a couple of what extra million just is that really necessary that's what it felt like you know that he just had that confidence if if I remember rightly, the day of the walkout itself, none of the walkout was happening, wasn't it? The day that Jürgen had an yes. operation um, and was away from the club. So in terms of, you know, I, I wouldn't suggest that was deliberately <laughs> tactical, but if it was deliberately tactical, it was a brilliant piece of tactic. <laughs> yeah. um, otherwise, it was fortuitous timing because it meant that he didn't have to take any kind of stance or opinion in the ground at the time. Mm. And he wouldn't have anyway. He just carried on coaching, obviously. Well, the next the next major milestone for me, and we'll uh, we'll split these either side of our our guests, our callers, is sits as the I would argue, Joel, it is the the win against Middlesbrough, but also the way the manager handles himself immediately afterwards. So, listen, you can pick, you could pick in that run in, you could pick Stoke in the two one where he makes the double change at half time and Firmino scores that fabulous half volley. You could pick the Emery Chan overhead kick against Watford. You could look at the early part of that season where Liverpool played some really really good stuff that was exciting, but then they ground it out. But for me, it wasn't just the win against Middlesbrough; it was the fact that I think for the first time you felt like post match he almost had a prepared a prepared speech. Where he was, this is the minimum requirements. This is now, this is just the base for everything we do from now on. We should always be playing Champions League football. Absolutely. I think that Middlesbrough won. And if I look back at all the games over the last four years, even though it was Middlesbrough, and they were already down at that point, weren't they, on the final day? In terms of what I was most nervous for, and because the stakes were so high and what rested on that game, that is still right up there. And I include all the finals we've been in in that because. And even all those games leading up to it, you mentioned the Watford one, West Ham away, which I know we won four, was it 4-0 or 4-1 in the end? But yeah. it was it was a nervy start. It, it took that Coutinho pass to set Sturridge through. Um, and there was that horrible 1-0 against uh, West Brom, was it, with a Firmino header? Uh, it, yeah, just on half-time. And, yeah. yeah, so it was a real kind of slog because we didn't have Mane in that run-in as well and he was so important throughout that season. But that Middlesbrough game, again... 
I remember watching the first half hour and we weren't playing well. I think Arsenal had already gone 2-0 up quite early in their game. So when they put the actual current table up, we were not in the top four. Um, and there was also a Lovren penalty incident where I think it was Bamford, which could quite easily have been given. Um, and then the timing of that one Adam goal right before half time was huge. And it ended up being a bit of a procession in the end. Um, but I think in terms of everything that's followed since then, you can kind of, there's a chain that that starts. Um, obviously, we had to get through the qualifier against Hoffenheim, but I think if we don't have Champions League football on offer, you, probably, you almost certainly don't get Salah to leave Roma uh, to join Liverpool. And then what happens with the next season, getting to Kiev probably doesn't happen. And then you can build it on from there. Fabinho, Alisson, Van Dijk, all of these depended on us getting Champions League. There's a Roy Evans quote, um, Ian, which is that Liverpool without European football is like a banquet without fine wine. I think that you can now... And should always say it's Champions League football, whether that's right or wrong. That's the reality of the way in which the world works. And that, you know, I go back to last season on this when, you know, people, including me, up to a point where we're thinking the manager would have to choose between league and European success, that that was, that was something that was going to be in front of him at some stage. He rejected that, and I think he rejected it because he understands that the very fabric of the club needs it to, to display what it's about on the European stage if it's going to succeed on the domestic. Completely, he's completely off that line of Liverpool exists for winning trophies. He completely, completely gets that, and it has to be at the highest level. We brought in players who's, you know, we know that our ambition is to win the league. We win, we want the league desperately, but we brought in European players who want the European Cup. So the only sensible solution is to go for both at all times. And he spent three years building a squad exactly to do for that, and um, or exactly to do that. That's more like a proper English. Um, but that, that's why he's built the squad. He's spent three years with a vision and he's built a squad. He's been given the time. He's demanded the time. He's deserved the time. And he's known from day one when he's come in what he's wanted in terms of building the shape and, and changing. And this is why we don't get any purchases in the summer. This is, this is why he's so definite a manager, so focused on knowing exactly what he wants and exactly what he needs that the idea of bringing in a Nicolas Pepe or a... Um, Dabala or any one of the other players that nobody bought in the end at all or bringing in Fakir he knows what he wants and he is not going to do anything that's going to jeopardise the harmony of the team and one of the other points um, one of the other great milestones of his of his reign one of the great early ones which game was it where the glasses get broken Norwich yeah in the, the celebration yeah. yeah that's that was the first real indication for me of exactly how much harmony there is between manager and players that celebration I think that that defines his entire his entire reign with us that he's built a squad of real harmony and built a squad that believes in him and believes that everything that he's going to ask them to do is the right thing to do I 16-17 now feels like a world ago to be honest with you Adam um, for a variety of reasons the, the way the players have moved and changed since then I remember coming back from Burnley um, when we got beat 2-0 that season. I genuinely remember sort of coming through the door, and it's the last time this has happened, you know, the, the manager's got the line doubters to believe us, but I walked through the door and Samantha said to me, you just seem really down, and I said, I just don't think you can do it. I'm just really worried you can't do it, that, you know, we're going to go through all this, and he's not going to be able to do it. And it was, it's forgotten, isn't it, really, that that season, I think the year after when we have Salah in, yes, we end up having to complete top four on the final day, but you always felt like we were going to do it. That was a scrap. It was a scrap all the way through that campaign, and it was, it, it was emotionally draining. Yeah, I think that I think that what we've seen is a kind of 
season by season progression because the the both of those seasons were one in which we needed to win on the last day of the season wasn't it uh, to get top 4 but the year before i agree with Joel you know it felt a little bit more on edge it just felt a little bit more we had about three chances to do it yeah exactly yeah and, and just couldn't quite do it and then that year you know it it just felt a lot more like well, we're going to do we're going to do it it's fine you know it doesn't matter like a lot of people were panicked weren't they towards the end of the mm, season i think we had, yeah bridge, it's, yeah. things like that where people were like you know god well, why has it got to go to the, it's gone gone to the last day of the season again it's ridiculous blah 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 but i just sort of thought well we're going to win it's not it, it it was never in doubt never a question for me and and it, the, the, that kind of belief had started to really seep through the support as into the majority of the support base and and everybody and 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 it it's now kind of got to the point where it's solidified to where you're kind of going going into this season most people saying it's us and city you know that that's what it is it doesn't it nobody that only the only people i heard saying at the end of last season that liverpool wouldn't be able to do it again this season were pundits and commentators no i, I didn't hear any liverpool supporters didn't read any of these supporters on twitter nothing nobody was saying liverpool won't be at the same level again this season everybody kind of felt we're, we're good enough to do this we're gonna do you know we, we are a brilliant football team and last year wasn't a flash in the pan and it all stems from that kind of simmering sense of belief that's kind of filtered through season on season on season on season and it he did say doubters to believers and everyone loved it and it was great and blah 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 but that he said that on his first day at the club we still had people walking out we still had people huffing and puffing we still had people and and we still had exactly like you people walking home and going this might just be a little bit too big for him but little by little by little by little but we have got to the point where actually now it's it's when people don't believe when people are when you're at a match and you and you hear people moaning and crying they stand out because you're yeah. going, what, what are you doing that for? You know, they, they are the minority now when it when it wasn't for so long. Okay, this is the Anfield Apps Weekender show. We're going to do more of this to come. Also, uh, we've got something on the Irish Festival with Emma Smith. A uh, little bit of work at the home-baked uh, Dead Pigeon Gallery thing coming together as well. That is to come. Jane Lawless for that. Uh, always good to speak to Jane. And Chris Ward talking about the Longstaff Brothers from The Athletic. Don't go anywhere. Neil Atkinson and John Gibbons having a chat about Harry's. Uh, the reason people are back, John, and they're always on edge. <laughs> what a pun that is. They can have that one, can't they? They can, add, they can take that one with them uh, and see where we end up. Uh, also, you know, the messaging is sharp. <laughs> Oh, I mean, you could you could take this kind of marked into the bank. I, think I this, would say. I think this chat's smooth. <laughs> honestly, we can we can go for some time. We I thought go. you were keen to do this. I was honestly, I've, I've had a big morning thinking about Harry's <laughs> when that just, your brain's wearing away underneath. Yeah, um, yeah. This this is what comes with the charity you're partnering with the Amphiova. Really good puns. Yeah, an endless number of them. A supply coming uh, <laughs> absolutely all over the all over the case. Uh, we very much enjoy partnering with Harry's. We have done for some time now, to be honest with you. And if you've been sort of listening to these messages and unsure when we do personally recommend those recommendations are personal uh, which is the case for everything that we do these sorts of reads for to be fair but in this instance uh, on Harry's we are very much into the idea of I still shave with Harry's uh, I very much like the uh, the, the aloe vera based sh- shave gel that you get with it that's my favourite part of the Harry's experience John uh, I think you're more of a weighted ergonomic handleman yourself <laughs> well I just love the science do you know what I mean I, lo- I love it I love the future I love it you know I'm a progressive kind of guy but you might, might 
points out that there is something news, and I think you know we we've, we've said to notice something this week. Uh, we say notice sort of quite a bit, but and anything we say yes to, we insist on getting sent them. Not just because we like freebies in the post, <laughs> but because you know we want to check it's good and we want to check that you know we will put our uh, our weight behind it, uh, so to speak. If, it, if if for what it is worth, uh, we like we like Harry's, uh, we like dealing with them, and we like the razors. So yeah, if you haven't tried it out yet, we would encourage you to do so. And yeah, it's cheap. It's harrys.com forward slash Anfield. Uh, you can get start and shaving with Harry's uh, today by claiming that trial set for three ninety five. It's harrys.com forward slash Anfield. Uh, the story is interesting, and obviously it's interesting the way in which they work through the internet, uh, taking less profits and selling directly via the internet, which obviously suits us. So we like this chat of internet-based businesses. <laughs> I'll not never that, catch on. Yeah, yeah, not that we're biased or anything. <laughs> uh, and the amazing quality blades are half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Uh, all of that information is there, but more than any of anything else, really, they have supported a number of podcasts over a long period of time, uh, and ours is most definitely amongst them. So it's harrys.com forward slash Anfield. The trial set is three ninety-five. Uh, it gets you the razor handle the five blade blade cartridge the foam and slave gel slave shave gel and the travel blade cover uh, blade and shave there became something different in my mouth uh, that is what you need uh, and it is good uh, we wouldn't recommend it otherwise uh, get stuck in joined by emma smith the director of the irish festival to have a chat about it this year it starts on the 17th formally on the 17th of october but we're going to chat about something that runs before then that got my attention when i went through the program in a minute or two but emma first and foremost what should people be looking for from the Irish Festival this year. It seems quite an interesting time politically to be doing something like the Irish Festival. I'm sure you've been engaging with that through the work. Yeah, so this year the theme is actually unique stories creatively told and through that lens we can look at things politically, we can look at things uh, historically and also uh, fictionally. So there's loads of things that we can draw people in on and the way that we're still looking at that is that all of these stories collectively help to create um, uh, the characteristics of Ireland and help shape that cultural identity. So we're looking for as many stories. We're telling stories, but we're also collecting stories throughout the festival. So people shouldn't be afraid to come up and let us know where they're from, what they've been doing, what their connection with Ireland is, and to make sure that we know about that. We're also looking for assistance in what people might like to see in future, because that all connects with storytelling and that rich tapestry that helps us understand Irishness. You cover an unbelievable amount of ground across the 10 days. And as I say, we're going to have a little chat about something prior to it. But it is almost every every genre of cultural enterprise gets covered from theatre. You've got something terrific with, with John Connors that's coming that's going to appear. Uh, you've got, uh, obviously, there's music in there as well. But there's the, 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 the stand-up comedy. There's there's a sort of historical looks. There's family days. It's absolutely everything that anyone could need across the 10 days. I'm nodding emphatically. <laughs> yes, yes. We're an arts and culture festival. That's absolutely our unique... So a selling point really is that we're not tied to one particular framework or mode of art and the other thing is that when you start to look at Irish culture and how it celebrates itself expressively it's very rarely one medium or another it's nearly always music and dance or music and dance and theatre or poetry and prose or so it it often has these sorts of layers of mediums so we've tried to echo that across the program and as you say there's a really rich variety and diversity of programme, things that we could sort of draw your attention to that are maybe unusual and you don't see in other festivals. 
Well, I mean, one of the ones that stuck out to me because it would right. is the is the Indie Cork Film Festival yeah, a little I was bit, just which, which is just looks it looks just looks like a remarkably engaging platform for for, for emerging filmmakers, and is you know is, is a really you're working with them. It is this sort of dark green. It's a program of, of Irish horror shorts, which the, the the screenshots in the brochure and on the websites really grab your attention. Yeah, I mean, Indie Cork we've worked with forever, such a long time, and what's interesting about working with them is because they've got such a, a large cohort of artists who send them work each year is it works a bit of a as a kind of barometer for what filmmakers are thinking about what the kind of current discourse is and Ireland hasn't got a huge history of horror filmmaking um, but actually that the use of that as a genre to express current thinking seems to have picked up a lot in the last few years. Um, I'd also tie to that the uh, Celtic Animation Film Festival which happens the same day just ahead of that and again is a series of shorts but instead of being film it's animation. So uh, anybody looking at um, what's happening in filmmaking now I think should look at both of those events. And also you remarkably brave about being outside um, throughout this there's a number of there's a couple of tours there's a South Liverpool walk there's a history tour about Liverpool and it's it's history there's even a new leaf which is being done in the bombed out church which counts as outside as far as I'm concerned yeah but it's you're very very bold about, about getting people wet well I think the thing is that I mean, it's uh, very Irish getting people very, wet it's very Flano Brian <laughs> I was gonna say no I think uh, those tours are really exciting for people and they show the absolute impact and influence of Irish people and communities on the shape of the city and um, something that an artist Paola Bernadelli said last year when she visited was that if you visit the Liverpool Irish Festival you visit all of Liverpool because it gives you a sense of the city and and how that connects with that history um, I, I know that people might get wet. It could be glorious. You just never know. And I, Brian Acton at the at uh, the Bombed Up Church, I think, is going to be amazing. Well, I mean, just on that as well. That's obviously for it's a compelling children's story. Yeah. Uh, it is. It's on the nineteenth of October. Just to give people information on that one, it's very much about bringing children along to that one. And there's a couple of others that work like that as well. It's you've it's timed around half terms and things like that. So you've you've very much got that in mind with the festival. We're really creating a, a family trail through the festival. So there's a number of things that people could pick up on through that, including the family day and the family Kaylee but yeah I think Brian's um, A New Leaf is going to be really spectacular there's stuff already happening uh, there's uh, In the Window with Rory Shearer at the Blue Coat and the stuff that's starting pretty soon and this is a series of uh, a really interesting sort of strand of work within the festival is the Invisible Women uh, series and it's starting in the Tate it's starting at the Tate next week um, on Monday so it's from the 14th of October and it is something which you're, you're trying to for instance, each day's got a different theme, a different approach. Uh, Monday's dual heritage. Uh, Wednesday is, is is creating with is, is people trying to deal with mass trauma creatively. Uh, Thursday and Friday is about Ireland reaching out. It's quite a it's a really bold, open door sort of approach. This you very much want people to come to you as part of, the, and this is both part of the festival formally, but not a formal part of the festival proper. It's a really interesting sort of way of separating this out. I mean, it must wreck your head a little bit of time <laughs> as the director. Occasionally, so Invisible Women started as a trail through the festival three years ago because we were looking at this misnomer of Irish society being uh, a matriarchal society, and of course, like all societies. It is, it's not, it's both. At least it's both if it's not patriarchal. So we were just trying to figure out ways in which we could talk to other members of the Irish community who weren't necessarily being seen through the creative arts. So, for instance, if, if you take traditional Irish music, regularly it's more male-dominated than women-dominated because the women danced. 
Yeah. So we were trying to look at other ways of getting women involved through Irish creativity. So what we've done is expand that. We spoke to Tate about becoming a Tate associate, a Tate associate, sorry, um, which we managed to do. And that gave us a week within their space, Tate Exchange, to run Invisible Women. And as a result of that, we started looking at things that would be important for women to discuss. Not that men can't at all. Everybody is very welcome. But it was a space in which we could talk about things like, as you say, dual heritage and what that means and how people are treated here for having Irish dual heritage. Um, we could look at things like the Two Arm Graves, for which Clara Kerr has produced this incredible choreographed piece called Caltier, um, which we're really looking forward to seeing in that space against the backdrop of the Mersey, um, looking out towards Ireland. So there's all of these incredible things where we need to sort of look at what Irishness means to people, what it does when you're in a different location, so what it means to Liverpool and how that affects people. Um, and we're sort of helping people talk about that and think about that and then think about identity and whether or not they are finding equity today. The the identity question is absolutely fascinating, always is to me. It's this, there's the, for instance, the, the very idea of dual heritage. There's an openness about the idea that identity is a multifaceted thing. And I think that that's something which the festival is always trying to pull through one way or another. But it, within this instance, you know, identifying, uh, people identifying as, as obviously as women, how that, in different heritage senses kicks in, how that then reflects into today. And what I think is really interesting about the Invisible Women Week is that it's almost four or five different flavours of that conversation. It's not one overarching one, and it's not one dominant one from the from a lecture down. Monday does have two or three lectures on, but from that point, it, be, it then becomes much, much, much more conversational and every day is open. Um, the first one isn't lectures, they're sessions in which we're asking people to come and talk about specific things. So the first the first one is a lecture, it's about the race riots because we've used the race riots that are a century old this year to talk about the term miscegenation, mm -hmm. which, which has become an incredibly negative term about being of mixed heritage. So there is one session that sets up that idea of what dual heritageism is in Liverpool because there are some very specific groups that we can look to to start thinking about dual heritageism. So for instance, one of the is black and Irish, which is not the same as black Irish. So if you're black and Irish, what we're sort of referring to in that in that terminology is being probably of Afro-Caribbean descent and having other heritage too. But there's also Irish and Chinese um, and many others. But the thing about black Irish is if you Google that, you will end up with white people with black hair and blue eyes. Yeah. So, you know, there, there are discussions to be had about what even those dual heritage terms mean and say. So we're sort of looking to explore that. But yeah, one lecture and then the others are sort of story release sessions where we're asking people to come to us and tell us about their heritage. It's an important part of the work, which is that the work doesn't, your job and the, and the, the idea of what the Irish Festival is, it doesn't just stop in, the, in this 10 days. And that's a really, really important point is that what you get from these and you want people to come to these, it's really important. People come, they're at the Tate, people can just come in. What you want is you want people to come to these but then that sort of informs the work that goes on across the rest of the year yeah absolutely so one of the other things that we're doing down there is collecting those stories we're, we're going to try and document as many of those as we can we're asking people to give them to us and contact details so that we can explore those further in future year programming um we're thinking that next year's theme will probably be exchange, but this is an exchange of stories. And so actually anything that we learn this year, we can start linking through year to year so that we can help extend those stories and understand them over a longer period of time. Um, and sort of, I, I don't know, I suppose, just generally expand what we know about Irish culture in Liverpool. Uh, 
all of this so the, the Tate stuff is all free for, so I'll just reiterate the dates again for people who are listening so it starts on the 14th of October 10 till 5 every single day uh, from the 14th and it runs through until the 20th that's at the Tate the other thing to point out as well is that everything uh, right the way through everything right the way through the, the, the festival itself is all I'll say very 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 keenly priced there is there is something here where you know you're very nothing is expensive is what I'm saying absolutely nothing is expensive every single thing that you've got running it's either free uh, maybe occasionally with a registration or with the idea that it's it's all it all looks to me to be very everything's under 15 pounds I think there's one at 20 but you get three incredible acts and an amazing host for that excellent uh, I'm always annoyed when the host isn't me but we'll move on um, <laughs> we'll just we'll, we'll not take that personally <laughs> it is but no it is it is all in there isn't it and you've I think quite deliberately tried to you know for instance this Kilkenny um, uh, Kill Kelly, who are playing as well. You know, everything that's on there is really is, is really engaged, and also it reaches out to the rest of the city. So, for instance, the Kilkenny stuff is in conjunction with Mellotone. You very much try to keep this festival, I said before, not just sort of geographically across the city, but working with as many different other groups in the city as possible. Well, I think the thing is, the Liverpool Irish Festival is exactly that. It's the Liverpool Irish Festival, and so there's this idea of import and export. We can't just bring Ireland here. We have it here, and so we try and use what we have, and connect that with outside island stories too okay uh, everything is on the website the website is the liverpool irish festival.com i'm hoping next week we're going to be chatting to uh, john connor connor's about his uh, his film uh, sorry his play uh, island's call which i'm really looking forward to uh, having that conversation with him and working from there on but there's absolutely everything that you might need across <laughs> the set from the 17th slash 14th right the way through until the 27th slash eternity uh, at, the, at liverpool irish festival.com you want a little look through there there shouldn't be anything that you're missing out on um let us know let us know what you fancy and if you go to anything let us know at the Anfield Rap and let the Irish Festival know as well and I'm now joined over the line by Jane Lawless who is the artist and also a curator of Dead Pigeon uh, the Dead Pigeon Gallery Jane thank you so much for joining us on the line hello I Hi, have, <laughs> I've got yeah I've got you at the moment up the wall uh, you've yes. just been on a bouge run to Aldi um, oh my god yeah <laughs> because you you're setting up an amazing little exhibition in a much well loved well thought of um, place in Liverpool which a lot of our listeners and subscribers will know very well which is uh, right next door to Home Baked the Bakery um, yeah. and the reason I wanted to get you on, James, because you were you were heavily involved in home baked and setting it up, and but also, I mean, I I sort of come across this and I noticed something that probably a lot of people don't really understand is that there's something a bit bigger to home bake called the Home Baked uh, Community Land Trust, and that's uh, you know the home baked community land just owns that strip of houses which everyone will know which is like that little row uh, to the left of home baked they're all derelict but you're taking over one of the semi derelict ones and you're putting on uh, an art exhibition this weekend that's right yeah um well i can tell you a little bit about the difference between the community land yeah, trust and the yeah. bakery itself so initially back in 2011 when this whole project and when I'm talking about that, that project, it was before it was known as Home Baked, it was obviously Mitchell's Baking, yes. which everyone remembers and our stories about. And there was an artist called Jana who came over. She was actually initially hired by the Biennial to do something in the local area with local people. And she insisted on being here for four years so she could actually get to know the community rather than one of these kinds of parachutes art projects. Because she recognised the sensitivity of the area 
and that a lot of us were in the process of losing our houses, including myself. So anyone who goes to the match especially will remember there was like a almost 20-year period where all the streets were tinned up. And if you came from there and you lived in that, it was awful because you were literally living in a ghost town. So this artist, Jana, um, she came over and she realised that you couldn't just do a quick fix. So she, she approached Mitchell's, the bakery, who at the time was still owned by Mitchell's and run by Mitchell's. And they were struggling because, well, if you take away the houses and the community, who's going to buy the cakes? Mm. So she, she kind of like intercepted and said, well, what if we, as in me, an artist, rent the space off you, as in your bakery, Mitchell's, and we'll just open every Tuesday night and see what happens. So literally, the light came on on Mitchell's bakery every Tuesday night. And over the course of a year, people started dropping by going, what are you doing and what's going on? And that's how it all began. So she realised that people were so at a loss because they were losing, you know, the, the area that they grew up in and they didn't know where to turn, they didn't know what to do. So Jana decided with the project money that she had and whatever, and her clothes because she's an international artist, she said, well, what if I introduce you to people who can tell you about community land trusts and how you go about actively saving the land together? And we were like, really? And she said, yeah, and we can introduce to architects and we'll just get from there. So basically, while we're there, being introduced to all these things we've never heard of because nobody thought we had any power because nobody wants to believe that you've got any power. We realised that we also had this opportunity here to to stick together in it as a group and make something positive out of something unbelievably negative that was happening to us. And we just said, there's different tires as a community of this all being done to us and we've got no control, do you know what I mean? Mm. So basically, um, while all this was happening, people started knocking at the bakery and saying, are you doing pies again? <laughs> are you doing bread? <laughs> and by now, the kind of bakery size of it is as well and truly lapsed just because there was you know there wasn't any passing trade so we just thought well what should we do here and that's how the actual bakery element was formed and that became home baked the bakery yeah. which almost was acted as like a front a front a front window but meanwhile there's always something happening in the background isn't there in any project and that thing that was underpinning everything was home baked community land trust so two separate boards set up at the same time, bakery itself as a self-sufficient business. And then if you see the CLT, almost like the, the, the mothership, so the bakery is in effect a tenant of the CLT. I'm sorry, I've just whipped on for ages there. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> so, yeah, so the CLT, like you say, um, is the sort of bigger picture of it all, isn't it, if you want to call yeah. it that. So they, and, and like I say, you will know the houses. I knew, I knew it exactly as soon as you said to me off air which, which row of houses they were. And you know what? I had to look at the house that um, you're doing this exhibition in the other week when I went to yeah. match. Because it it caught me eye because I walked past uh, the Sandon. I walked past the Sandon on my way to the match. Um, I yeah. walked past the Sandon wall in the garage. Home bakes on me left, uh, and I saw that the house uh, had something going on, and I was dead intrigued. And probably a lot of people yeah. who go to the match were like wondering what was going on. Uh, yeah. And I just saw this, and I thought I think it'd be wonderful to tell um, our subscribers, uh, our listeners 
about the the stuff that you're doing and the the CLT obviously own that property and and you're going in there and using that space and you you're basically putting on an art exhibition till Monday. Yeah, well, basically, well, just to clarify something, the, the, the CLT own the land. Sorry, yes. Yeah. the property. Yeah. Just because we just have to, like, make sure that everyone understands that. Yeah. So they've, they've secured the land and the next process is, is to get the houses redeveloped and then ultimately the goal is that they'll eventually come into ownership of home-baked. Yes. But basically, from our perspective, as in me and my best mate, Catherine, <laughs> we set up Red Pigeon Gallery about two years ago. Because um, we just got, like, I suppose we just, we, we know loads of people with loads of talent, and we were like, unless you like the big guns and you're going to get into the walker or the teeth or even, like, the blue coat, you know what I mean? You're not, you can't really show or demonstrate or what you actually do or what you're passionate about. So we set up Red Pigeon Gallery. Literally, it was a fluke name. <laughs> Because we worked with a guy called Jason Abbott, who owned the then semi-derelict warehouse off the back of London Road. And before this was going to get redeveloped, he said, well, do you want to do something with this space? Ultimately, it's a bit of a shithole, but <laughs> it's going to be amazing. But nobody else is going to touch it with a barge pole right now. So we walked in, big old warehouse, and it was literally full of dead pigeons. <laughs> So we just said as a nickname, ha, the, the Pigeon Gallery. And then straight away, everyone just started saying, when does it open? Nobody even questioned the name. <laughs> it's like, like that's oh hipster. my God. Yeah, we're going to get, well, no. Yeah, because I sound a hipster, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we just thought, well, because we've come through all this process of getting cursed out by developers in this sense, we felt like we were cursing the birds out. So we decided to keep the name and almost take the bird as our talisman because we were like, we're so sorry that our, the arrival of us means you lose your home because that's happened to us so many times. Yeah. So we decided, I literally had bird died in front of me and I just thought, right, I'm going to sketch you as you do. And it's that sketch that the whole thing just grew out of that. And then when we had to leave because they were redeveloping it, and then we couldn't afford the space, the usual story. Um, I just thought, well, the gallery doesn't have to die. We can just approach other people with buildings and say, can you host our gallery for X amount of time? And we'll bring an exhibition in and blah, blah, blah. And that was two years ago. And this will be our fifth um, location. The one before this was actually a fire department station in Texas. <laughs> That I took over for three months. Now that was an adventure because I even had a black widow spider turn up to that. Oh no, thank and you! And all the texts and all the texts on fire. Men and women were just like, "Yeah, man, the dead pigeon gallery, that's cool." <laughs> 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 no, the, it was boss. This one I've seen online. Someone, someone said it's it's called it's come full circle uh, and and do you feel like that because obviously what you've just told us there about who baked CLT who baked the bakery yeah. that's quite a while ago now and, and now it's sort of like you're back um, after something started like you said uh, a little bit small very community based has now become quite a wide thing which a lot of people have took under its wing <laughs> excuse yeah. the pun um, yeah. but yeah it, it, you must feel incredibly proud to be to be going back there to host your exhibition there 
No, it's lovely. And I think uh, we always wanted to... Because I used to be on the board of the Community Land Trust. Um, and just personal reasons, like my mum got sick and then we lost her and we had to step down from the board. Then my dad was on it. So it's always... We've never really strayed too far away. But I knew that when I came back to home base, I wanted it to be in my own capacity as, yeah, I'm a local and I'm a season ticket holder, but I'm also an artist and I'm proud of that. And I also want to encourage other artists, especially from working class areas, where there's still a stigma to putting your hands up and saying, you know what, I'm into art and I do it, or poetry or music, or I can play the ukulele, or we all tend to skiss each other when we're working class artists. I'm like, well, why? We need all the forms of communication possible, especially now. You know, don't want to go political, but under this Tory government, blah, 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 blah. We need to really celebrate what we can all do together. So our motto, like as in Deb Pigeon Gallery, is definitely to celebrate and highlight the strength and the creative might, not only in home base, because that's what this show's all about, but especially in working class communities, because what we found as working class artists is the only people who can take up the opportunities are rich people because most of the opportunities you've got to do for free. I'm going to step down off my soapbox now, list. <laughs> Listen, you're, you're making things happen and you're providing a space and, you know, with, with Dead Pigeon Gallery as well, you're encouraging it so it's only a good thing. And, and like I say, I just, I know it's probably quite short news as we're speaking now on Thursday, which is the launch night. This show goes out uh, Friday yeah. morning. But for anyone who's listening, who's around and about, you know, it doesn't all just come to a halt on after the match day. The, the whole community doesn't close down. There's still amazing things exactly. going on that people can get involved. Yeah. With home bake still runs by the way uh, every day every day of the week basically um I've, I've been down there myself and i see like loads of work he's going in there and stuff like that and uh, i just wanted to sort of give it a bit of a shout and of course mr john gibbons is playing his trumpet down there isn't he <laughs> <laughs> yeah because he played for us him and chris as silently they played for us back in the day when we literally didn't even have an oven in the bakery, and we never forgot that. And the Anfield Rats were one of our biggest, like, supporters and champions. And they just started the Anfield Rats, I think it was around 2011, 12, and we just started in the bakery. And it was like the two projects were really kind of a fledgling, and I think we loved watching them go from strength to strength. And I think Anfield Rats have enjoyed watching Home Bake go from strength yeah. to strength, so it's nice to get John back for that reason as well. Well, Jane, good luck uh, for this week and not that you'll need it. I'm sure it'll be absolutely brilliant and everything that you're doing um, with Dead Pigeon and just keeping, you know, the Anfield alive and, and still bringing this sense of community and I think is is wonderful and something that we should all try and actively be doing more so ourselves, uh, the places we live or even Anfield because we all hold it so yeah. so close to our hearts. So, um, so thank you so much for joining us on the weekender. So it's John Gibbons for the weekend, and we are doing the last fan standing quiz again. I uh, hope you played last week. I hope you got involved. I hope you uh, enjoyed me and Neil doing doing the presenting on last fan standing. We did the Friday quiz uh, on the app, and we also did the match predictor. There was eight winners of the match predictor, so hopefully uh, one of you new players won that. But we are playing again. We're playing a quiz from the last week, and on the phone, we've got Liam Fairclough. Liam, hiya. Yeah, all right, John. <laughs> nice to speak to you, mate. And your confidence on this? What's your what's your LFC knowledge like? Because I know you're a young lad. No, I'm hoping it's all right, like, but 
yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's based. It's, <laughs> it's mostly stuff in in uh, in your lifetime. I say that actually. I've just looked at the third question, and it's from 1990. So I'm just lying to you. But uh, but anyway, well. the lad, <laughs> the lad last last week only got one though. So you've only got you've got one to beat. Um, so I think uh, I think you can do better than that. Well, I should hope so. <laughs> so the last, the way Last Fan Standing works is, and we're going to play it. So you download it on your app, and um, whoever's playing that night at seven pm, you, you keep going until you get one wrong. So we're going to do the same as well. So there's eight questions, but as soon as you get one wrong, you're out. And then how it works on on obviously the app is, if you, if you get all all eight right, then you're sort of the Last Fan Standing. But we're just going to sort of go on that. So um, first up, um, it's just a yes or no. Is Virgil Van Dijk the current captain of the Netherlands? Yes. He is, correct. Uh, we're off, Liam. Good lad. Yeah, uh, <laughs> okay, number two. Who did the Reds buy midfielder Charlie Adam from? Was it Stoke City or Blackpool? Blackpool. Correct. Two, flying. Number three. John Aldridge represented which country in the 1990 World Cup in Italy? Was it England, Scotland or the Republic of Ireland? Ireland. It was Ireland. Irish listeners were screaming out on that. Uh, yeah, he played for them in 1990 and 1994. And there's obviously a uh, famous footage of him uh, telling the uh, the linesman, I think it was, to fuck off uh, <laughs> when he couldn't we couldn't get oh, on. Yeah. That was in the in the boiling hot heat in Italy. But uh, but yeah, he was at, he was at 90 as well uh, according to this. Okay, um, slightly tougher one. This which of these Liverpool players is the oldest? So Adam Lallana, Dejan Lovren, or Jaden Shakiri. So which of those players is the oldest? Lalana, Lovren or Shakiri? Lovren. No, it's Adam Lalana. He's thirty one. Oh, Adam Lalana is thirty one. Uh, but three, oh, you you top you top of the top of the leaderboard so far, Liam. It's right, yes, it sounds good. <laughs> and we'll send you a t shirt, we'll get you the t shirts out in the post as well. Oh sorry, nice one. before you go, uh, international breaks are crap, aren't they? Oh, just fucking off. I don't know what to do myself. <laughs> I mean, we'll watch something. I mean, Brazil and Senegal are playing right now. Hey, we're recording this on oh, Thursday man, afternoon. I've got a penalty, you know, score, doesn't he? So yeah, yeah. So, so the Reds are doing the business at the moment. But yeah, no Liverpool to watch this weekend. But uh, Old Trafford next week. Are you confident going to, uh, going to Old Trafford? You never know, you know, because like, the derby, it's form just blows up the window sometimes, isn't it? So I hope so anyway. But yeah, hopefully you're 4 now. <laughs> That'll be good. I'm just conscious we were crap there last year, so I'm hoping we put on a better, exactly better performance. Yeah. So anyway, Liam, nice one. You're on three points, so you're the top of the leaderboard at the moment. So, but we'll keep playing it. So if you want to, if you want to play it, do look out on the Facebook subscribers group. Uh, we'll be putting that out uh, probably later uh, than, than we should be. Kind of each Thursday, kind of looking for players. But if you've if you've enjoyed this, if this is a bit of you, you can download the Last Fan Standing app. It's completely free. There's a game every every night at seven o'clock, and then three hours before each Liverpool game, there's a bit of a predictor one which you can win cash prizes. Me and Neil are going to be hosting a few of them, so look out for that. Uh, but in the meantime time a uh, nice one to Liam for playing and back to the studio and it's John Gibbons again for the weekend and now delighted to be joined on the phone by Chris War from The Athletic to talk to us about an article that, that sort of pleased me greatly Chris uh, in do you wrote earlier in the week it's about the Longstaff brothers it goes in you know in depth sort of into their into their background and, and just sort of what it might do for kind of the, the feeling around around Newcastle and United, and uh, you know you, you don't want to you know pin too much on on a nineteen year old lad, I suppose. But I mean, first of all, the, the, these two brothers, you know how they play the game, and obviously the, the fact that 
the story around the winning goal in front of the Gallagher, you know, against the big team is, it does sort of feel like the story that Newcastle United fans needed at the moment. Oh, definitely. This has really boosted the city. I cannot tell you how different Tyneside feels this week compared to last week. Last week, after the 5-0 hammering at Leicester, there was deserved criticism all over the place. Steve Bruce had got things wrong. The players had been terrible. And I think that there was was almost a a fatalism on Tyneside that, look, we're going down this season, and and that was horrendous. But then on, on Sunday, Bruce made some very bold calls. He made significant changes none more so than bringing 19-year-old Matty Longstaff in for his Premier League debut alongside his 21-year-old brother, Sean, who's only played 13 or 14 Premier League games himself. It was a significant risk, but it really paid off. And yeah, you don't want to place too much on these young lads too soon, particularly Matty, who's only played 90 minutes of Premier League football. But he just brought something different to the Newcastle side, the way that he played it. He had a fearlessness about him. He drove them forward. There was energy in midfield. It was everything that Newcastle were lacking the week before. And for it to be two lads who grew up in North Shields, have been Newcastle fans for a lot of years, from the score in front of the Gallagher to win against Man United, his dad, David Longstaff, who... Uh, is a ice hockey, but still an ice hockey coach and player at Whitley Warriors. For him to be there, it was just, it was a really, really special afternoon on Tyneside. And as I say, it's transformed the mood. Yeah, you you mentioned the article that his dad was meant to be playing, wasn't he? Had to sort of um, you know book an afternoon off work. I, I mean, I'm better glad he he did. You know, he'd have been gutted, wouldn't he, if he uh, if he would have missed that? Oh, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, his dad's and his in his 40s now and I think that he scored a goal a few weeks ago for Whitley Warriors the ice hockey team which made it 30 consecutive seasons he scored in which Unreal. I think is a record but um, yeah so he coaches them but he, he had thought about going along to play on Sunday I think Matty persuaded him and said look dad how many times are you going to get me to, to see me make my Newcastle United debut and so he went along and yeah I think he had a good few drinks in, in the corporate box and really enjoyed himself and yeah it was, it was a special afternoon for his family and what I would say about the two of them is and I know there was the tweet from Gary Neville the other day about the interview after the game on Sky Sports where the the two of them about three and a half minutes it's just sort of uh, unfiltered joy and you don't get that very often from footballers but the two of them are are, they are just still young lads who've grown up in Newcastle desperate for to play for this club and it really was brilliant to see and they're both genuine lads they're both very down to earth their family keep them down to earth and they won't get too high by from all of this I mean I Undoubtedly, they would have expected uh, all of the scrutiny that there's been this week, not in a negative sense, sorry, all of the coverage that's been this week, but really they will be embracing this as well and they'll be thinking, we, this is only the start, we want to keep going here and hopefully uh, in time Newcastle have, have found two young lads who can really help them. That Actually, this season have already had four academy graduates, Paul Dummett, Andy Carroll, who's now back, and the Longstaff brothers play for them in the first team in Newcastle. And it's a good few years since Newcastle have had that, so that's a real positive as well. I'm interested to get a bit of background about Matty and how much sort of buzz there's been around the city about him because sometimes with a young player you know people will be talking about them you know from sort of 15, 16 oh he's going to be in the first team watch out for this kid type thing and then sometimes a lad just gets an opportunity and just takes it I'm, I'm wondering which kind of one Matty fits into more Well Matty's an interesting one because behind the scenes over the last few years between Matty and Sean, I think Sean that they're almost so more of an attacker midfielder, and I think they were concerned in terms of could he transform into that sort of deep line role he was going to play in, and he broke into the team, did very well as that. 
Sean was brought into the setup by Rafa Benitez in the summer of 2018. He worked with the first team for the whole of first of last first half of last season. Then eventually got his chance due to injuries. Matty really only broke into the. Uh, under 23 setup at the start of last season he was probably the most consistent player to be fair and there's a lot of people behind the scenes who, who said for a while if you pick one of the two Longstaff brothers I'd probably say Matt he's more likely to make it but that's not that they were thinking this guy's definitely going to play for the first team yeah. he's, he's got something about him he's got energy gets around the pitch but he's not he's not the biggest, he's not the flashiest, and so he wasn't someone who I think at the age of 14 or 15 everyone thought he's definitely going to make it in the first team. But through hard work, through perseverance, through learning from his brother, through uh, the, the upbringing that he's had and his, his father and mother, who, who was a netball player herself, keeping them grounded, I think that they've just kept working at it. And he really impressed. But as soon as Bruce came in the summer, I was out in China, Matty Longstaff was already there and he, he said first training session I saw him and he said because he was ginger you could notice him a lot more than others <laughs> but in general he said he just saw him and, and week on week he, he said it was getting to the point where he basically couldn't ignore him any longer and once what happened at Leicester happened he decided he wanted greater legs and, and mobility in midfield he brought Matty in. Do you think what's happened with Matty might give Sean a bit of a boost as well I, I, I read probably in your article that it was his best performance of the season um, I mean the start of the season hasn't gone brilliantly for him. I think I think it's fair to say, and I know there's 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 you know he's had injuries and stuff, but there's maybe a bit of talk that the that the you know rumours around him leaving, you know, the bids from Manchester United and things like that might have been a bit of a distraction. Do you think having his brother there alongside him and everything that's kind of come through that might give him a bit of a boost and and improve his form a little bit? Undoubtedly, I think that you saw that in his performance on Sunday. I think having his brother alongside him energised him. It was almost like, I want this to be a brilliant day for Matty as well. We can feed off each other. And they haven't played together loads. They did a fair bit first half of last season in the other 23s when Sean kept on going down, then come back with the first team setup. But really, Sean so far this season, he had a knee injury in, in March, which was the first serious injury he's had, I think, in pre season. He was surprised himself how long it took him to come back. Behind the scenes, some of the coaches, I think, have commented privately that he was almost overthinking when he was saying if he got the ball and he was turned from one side to another rather than being a natural motion as it was last year he's almost overthinking it he wasn't subconsciously trusting his knee yet then he picked up an ankle injury just a small one and train that set him back again and he hasn't been himself so far this season he hasn't reached the heights of last season partly I think because he set the bar so high partly because he admitted himself a few weeks ago there probably was a little bit of being distracted in the summer when his name's being mentioned every week with a potential £50 million move to Manchester United but he's knuckled down his focus and, and Matty coming in there yet yeah, has it has energised them I think they're both really fed off each other on Sunday when one of them made a good pass they were applauding each other when, when they were in trouble they were coming to help each other so I think the two of them it really they really did complement each other well and look we don't want to get carried away here but I just think that, that the two of them in there at the moment I can't see with Isaac Hayden still being suspended I can't see how you wouldn't start the two of them at Stamford Bridge and Newcastle's next game and it's I mean to go back to the, to the early points about it but it's also been a nice boost for fans as well it's great to see two lads who as you say seem so grounded what, what I really like about the piece is it it gives a lot of colour around them as, as as young men as well as footballers and the fact that they've still got a season to get to the to the local club as you, as you say in there they'll, they'll, they'll play a bit of cricket I mean they probably won't be allowed now I would say you don't want you don't want fast bowlers running in at the bit you know you know, to, to, you're certainly into the season but they, they just seem like good lads and, and that's 
that's nice for football fans as well because obviously we've we've got someone like Trent Alexander Arnold who who's a wonderful footballer but also someone who a lot of, of us in Liverpool look up to and you know the, the kind of person he is and, and the fact that he he just insists look I'm a normal lad who's who, who's living everyone's dreams and I'll appreciate that and fans like that don't they you know you want you want to see someone you know you want to see a young lad make it from your city but you also it means that much more if if you can tell that they realize they realize you know how special it is and it and it means as much to them as it would do you if you somehow found yourself in a Liverpool or Newcastle shirt. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's so many similarities between that Liverpool and Newcastle in terms of what it means for someone in either of those areas, respective areas, to grow up and play for their for their clubs. And you can see that in both Sean and Matty. They've they've been massive football fans their whole life. They've played ice hockey as youngsters. They're yeah, they, they played cricket as well. Sean was a very good bowler. They started out in North Shields Juniors. They still go there every week. They, they've got a passion for that area, that area of Tyneside. And they, they just love the fact that they are now playing for the boyhood club. The fans really buying that. Newcastle fans, when they went through a period where there weren't many first-teamers who, who were from the area, Paul Dummett aside, it was spoken about every week about how it was ridiculous that Newcastle couldn't bring through players. How was there no one from this football area who, who could get into the first team? And mm. it was there was almost that disconnect. And given everything that's going on negatively at Newcastle United at the moment, the disconnect with the owner, the disappointment with Rafa Benitez leaving in the summer, the underwhelming appointment of Steve Bruce to have... A, Sean Longstaff last season, but B, his brother to come in alongside him last Sunday to score on his debut alongside his brother in midfield. It's just, it, it has really lifted the city and it, it feels, week on week, Newcastle is a very, very moody city in terms of it changes dramatically and this week just feels markedly different to last week and it feels for the first time in a long while since the summer that there is a little bit of positivity going forward. And I guess it's just a case now of, of keeping that feel-good feeling going because Newcastle, you know, they're still 16th, aren't they? So they, they've come out of the relegation zone, uh, which is, you know, always always good, always feels good. But, you know, we, we I guess it can't be forgotten that this season is still going to be a battle for Newcastle, kind of whatever happens, really. Well, without doubt. I mean, Newcastle's biggest problem is that they seem to have a lack of goals on the side. They've only scored five Premier League goals so far this season. Even last weekend against a poor Man United team in a game that Newcastle, particularly in the second half, got the better of them in. They didn't have too many clear-cut chances. I think Alan St. Maximan coming back makes a difference to them because he gives them a direct running ability. They need Miguel Almiro on to get a goal because he looks desperately short of confidence. Joe Linton's not really a central striker and it's, so it's trying to get as much as you can out of him while also get Andy Carroll and try and get more minutes out of him but it, it will be a struggle this season I think defensively when he plays with the three-man central defence as he did at the weekend and as they did away at Spurs that for Newcastle suits them best because it sort of covers their own limitations and they're almost stronger as a unit but between now and the end of the season they're going to have to find a greater source of goals whether that's getting Dwight Gale fit again whether that's <laughs> hopefully Sam Maximan and Almir on contributing because it, it is going to be a struggle and if you offered a lot of Newcastle fans 17th, 16th place now I think they would take it because I think that they realise that even after last sun, the positivity of last Sunday this is a team who have yet to find consistency and that does lack goals. And just finally uh, on The Athletic and the fact that obviously you, you were Say, I was going to say allowed, but you're, you, you're given the, the room to kind of write this kind of thing for, for the athletic must be sort of part of the reason why, why you took it up because a lot of this information, you know, in the article is stuff that you've been building up over time, really. So it's not a case of, you know, oh, we need to research for the piece I'm writing today. I mean, presumably this is 
this is talking to you know getting to know the family over over a period you know sitting on the fact that he you know Sean once took six wickets uh, isn't is it somebody you can necessarily build an article around well maybe you can but you know it's it's that information isn't it and it's collating it over the time and and that's why you know we know James Pierce well and, and James is really good at that really he'll be he'll be writing a story you know that he's not quite sure what it is but but the information is is kind of gathering all the time and that's what sort of I mean I would say good journalism is really it's 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 kind of you know it's preparing for the story that, that maybe one day you won't write but uh, hopefully you will yeah definitely that it's about sort of gaining as much information as possible getting closer to people hiving little bits off thinking right that's interesting keeping records of different bits and bobs getting to know people and yeah so one of the reasons i was i was attracted to the athletic is it it's it is about this sort of more in depth the more time to do things so you have the time to research you have the time to to to, to do that where it may not be a story now it may not be a story even for months if not years that you may use something but being given the time to really go frontline in depth and do that and then and then when the time comes you feel you can really build an article which which has depth to it which has different layers and and the long stuff actually it was interesting because my idea going in to Sunday for the game I thought was I'll probably do something based on Sean Longstaff. Even though I knew Matty was playing, I was thinking at this point, if I, if I focus on Sean, I've got a lot of information about Sean. Obviously, being against Man United, the club we was linked to in the summer, uh, I'd spoken to a few people in and around him the week beforehand, and, and they'd said how there seemed to still be a little bit of interest from Manchester United. So I was thinking about Sean. And then it's sort of during the game itself, after about 10 minutes, I thought, no, this has to be on the two of them together, the two of them playing. It's almost unique that you would have not just two brothers playing the same team, but two brothers playing together in midfield. I can't even, I can't think of an example of that really anywhere in the last five or ten years where that happened. And so it became a piece where I felt I had enough background information to really go big on that. And and I would say that ours, where it was different to elsewhere, I'd say a lot of other people focused on Matty, which I fully understand, but I felt like our piece was was a bit of both, which gave, which gave it a sort of different little perspective, which is hopefully uh, what you're seeing that hopefully we can bring on The Athletic. Okay, uh, The Athletic is a subscription service, a bit like the Anfield that we believe the quality is worth paying for. Um, you can give it a trial or you can sign up uh, for a year. Obviously, if you sign up for a year, you get it cheaper and there's a special offer if you go through the Anfield Wrap link, which is theathletic.co.uk forward slash the Anfield Wrap and you can get uh, The Athletic for two forty nine a month if you sign up for the year, so that is half price. Uh, it's a really good a service uh, I'm really enjoying it not just for the Liverpool stuff which is uh, predominantly written by James Pierce and Cy Hughes and is as good as you would imagine from those guys but also the stuff I'm able to dip into from other clubs and um, Chris's article this week is a really good example of that so I hope you've enjoyed that conversation if you have and you want to read more it is theathletic.co.uk forward slash the Anfield app to sign up and but yeah thanks a lot Chris and uh, it's good to hear about some positivity in Newcastle <laughs> Yeah, so it's nice to be able to report on positivity. We don't <laughs> have much of that recently. Oh, we'll see how long it lasts. Cheers, Chris, and back to uh, probably Neil. Welcome back. It is the weekend. It is the end of our show, but you know there's still another 10 or 15 minutes left. If you listen every single week, there isn't a game to look forward to, but there is Jurgen Klopp's tenure to look back on and begin to anticipate where it goes next. Joined by Adam Smith, Ian Salmon, and Liverpool.com's Joel Rabinovitz. Always good to have Joel on the show uh, with us. Um, he wrote an excellent piece, actually, about the West Brom walkout this week. If you do want to check that out, it is on the website there for you. It's Liverpool.com for that. Um, want to work through this the sudden shift and I think it's I think it's fascinating Joel the sort of the the 
the difference that Salah and then Van Dijk make in two quite different ways, I think, quite quickly, and also the sale of Coutinho in amongst all of that. Uh, it's to me the the manager you know the manager seems to be pushing for Coutinho to go in the summer and it seemed counterproductive he was desperate to get Van Dijk in wasn't going to move on anything else these are the sorts of things that at times it felt he was at odds with a few a fair few supporters who would obviously would have hung on to Coutinho at all costs and were you know and, and just wanted any centre back and the backdrop of all this is most Salah and I think the manager when he sees enough of Salah almost decides that he can decide that Mo Salah is Liverpool's best player and not Phil Coutinho it's funny when you look back at the squad now and a lot of the players that are now kind of widely considered, if not Liverpool legends, some of the best players we've seen in our lifetimes, when they first arrived weren't kind of universally greeted with that much excitement or kind of conviction by fans. Mane was one of them. I think a lot of us were kind of a little bit unsure about what he was going to bring. A little bit underwhelmed. You were thinking Mario Goetz, et cetera, et cetera. Names exactly. were getting popped about. And he was kind of talked about as a streaky forward who kind of had patches of good form and then went off the boil for two or three months at a time. Salah, again, his numbers were good in Italy, but obviously didn't work out for him first time in the Premier League. And I think he started obviously brilliantly for Liverpool, but throughout those first few months you were always wondering how is this kind of just a purple patch is this just a really kind of hot streak and he's starting well and he's going to fade off and I think when I look back on that first season I think the one that I really felt like he's going to do something special here was Stoke away when I think he started on the bench and um, we started with Solanke up front that day and I think he came on in about the last 15 minutes scored that brilliant volley and then scored again um, and I think that took him to about 18 goals by kind of early December and I was thinking oh my word because when he first came in I was thinking if he hits 10 or 15 goals um, and gets a few assists that's probably decent for first season um, so for him to kind of hit almost 20 um, by kind of early December was kind of a real marker and you're right the whole Van Dyke uh, saga I suppose was kind of going on in the background there because obviously he missed out in the summer and there was kind of rumours that we might go back for him in January. And I think one of the interesting things about that time is that although obviously the impact Van Dyke has is incredible and he's taken us to a whole other level, that Tottenham 4-1, our defence actually improved from that day before Van Dyke got there. In fact, the period from that game in October to December, we kept a lot of clean sheets, yeah. barely conceded any goals. And the actual structure of the defence was much improved, even though the personnel were the same. Lovren was still playing after that game. And then we had the, obviously the Burnley one, I think Van Dijk had just signed, but he wasn't in the squad. Clavan gets a 94th minute winner um, and then Coutinho goes straight after that. So that's a real, it's a real crossroads if you're kind of mapping out Klopp's tenure so far, that whole kind of period of a few months, Salah kind of, yeah, catching fire straight away and then Van Dijk arriving and yeah, he, since then. Adam, he doesn't, he gets a good hand in a few different ways, a bit more than I think people think you know I think Liverpool's experimental phase of its transfer committee had maybe sort of worked itself through Michael Edwards was 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 making more and more decisions at the club uh, and the players that he has and the moments that he has you know he gets a better hand than people think but he doesn't have to play it brilliantly and I think that that's in terms of the way he works around recruitment lesser men possibly would have buckled and thought I've just got to get a centre back in They'd have just thought, not the one that I'm absolutely desperate for and the one who's completely committed to us. Lesser men would have compromised once it couldn't happen against Southampton and he doesn't. And 
lesser would also have thought I've got to hang on to Coutinho at all costs. It sounds, it feels as though the board will back me in that regard. They will, they'll fight for, the, they'll fight for all of this sort of stuff. And he doesn't do that either. He backs this idea that he only wants people who want to be there. But I think he also backs the idea, and I think it's really interesting. I haven't seen what's happened to Coutinho since, even though he's doing well at the moment at Bayern. I think he backs the idea that he wants his best players to be his front three, that it must be these front three. And if we do that and we get that right, I'm not messing about with this lad in midfield. We will go forward because we've got this dynamism. And that's what I mean when I say he plays his hand absolutely brilliantly. He absolutely does. And I think... I mean, I think you're right in so much as I think he gets he gets a help not only in kind of as you say that the committee haven't worked itself out and things, but I think he also gets a bit of a hand in the sense that a lot of players are better than people think they are. I think Dejan Lovren is a perfect example of that. He is absolutely not a perfect defender. We know he's got flaws and we know what those flaws are, but he's a hell of a lot better than some people think he is. You'd think from some people he can't even do up his boots. Like you He'd know, be starting for Manchester City uh, right now. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Right now we would absolutely. If you if you said to City, you know, take take one of our you know p- players off the bench, take any of the ones you want, so they'd, they'd probably take him. Lovren or Otamendi. Well, yeah, exactly. So you can make a strong case he start for virtually any side in the league apart from Liverpool right now. Just at the moment, so, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so d- d- there are things where it's th- it's that age-old thing. I think Paul Cope talks about it quite a lot, doesn't he, where he says about, you know, you you forget that you watch these players all the time. You don't watch the same thing of other, other teams. And if you watched other teams, you'd go, bloody hell, as if Lovren's not better than exactly as Joel says most of the defenders in the league, yeah. But when Joel said that, I actually got really excited about the idea of watching Louise and Lovren play in the same <laughs> back four. Like, wow, like, I tell you what, they're keeping some dynamic clean sheets one week, but then they're shipping six the next. Exactly. But and and that's what you get. But but Klopp had these players to work with, and he was able to sit back and go, yeah, th- there are some good players in there. I can get more out of these. You know, look, he's, he's he would never say it, but he's going to look at it and go, I'm a better manager than Brendan Rodgers. I'm a better man manager than Brendan Rodgers. I can get more out of these players than Brendan Rodgers was able to get. So I'm going to lift this club immediately by five points, just by working with these players and getting them to do what I want them to do. That's not to say he hasn't got flaws. I think pretty much everybody would agree that maybe he was loyal to subpar goalkeepers for, for too long. But I think one thing we don't know, one thing that was that is always kind of an unspoken thing behind the scenes, isn't it? is what information the manager's got. Because when we're all panicking and going, get any defender, sign Johnny Evans, the manager's going, I know Virgil van Dijk's going to sign for us. We didn't know that. We, In fact, like two days before he was going to sign, Man City are talking about how, you know, there's that tweet, isn't there, of, you know, he's going to sign as a, initially as a backup to Otamendi or whatever it is. We, you know, we, we're all panicked thinking he's going to go to City. Klopp might be sitting there going, I, I absolutely know we're signing him. We've just got to wait till January and I'm willing to wait till January. If he didn't have that information, I'm sure he would have signed Johnny Evans or signed somebody else. Or signed Laporte. Or, or signed Laporte, exactly. But w- he's got information that, that, that we don't have that gives him the ability to go, no, I trust these lads. I trust Lovren to be able to do the job that I need him to do until January when Virgil van Dijk's going to arrive. And when that happens, we'll be golden. It's That January is the, the start of, of where we are now, Ian. And I think that when you sort of chart this stuff through, there's some unlikely results in there, but one of the core ones that defines the rest of that campaign and goes on to define the reality that both clubs have lived through since is Liverpool 4, Manchester City 3. It's a game where, for instance, Van Dijk doesn't even play, doesn't even feature. You know, Coutinho's gone, there's no Van Dijk on the pitch. It's worth remembering that that day. And when, when Klopp does talk about the fact that it has been a team effort to get Liverpool all the way to Madrid... It's things like this I think he's referring to. But Liverpool that day, Manchester City turn up, they've already got the league one. They look absolutely imperious. No team in the country has looked like they've been able to land a glove on them. And then Liverpool 
basically decimate them and say to Manchester City, this is what you're up against now. And you're going to win, possibly win more than you lose, but you're not going to win them all. Yeah, and it's it, it was, um, I'm trying to remember back to the performance now. Was that just after the League Cup final or was that the season? No, after? no, it was, uh, it, was it was the game after uh, we beat Everton in the Merseyside derby, uh, the third round of the FA Cup game. Um, so it was just, it was pretty close to that. It was mid-January. So it felt like a night game, but it was a half-four kick-off on a Sunday. And that's yeah. one of the reasons why it ends up feeling as tumultuous as it does. Yeah, because it feels like it feels like a European game, doesn't it? It's, it's And also going back to the previous, that first season when we lose to City in the League Cup, but then they come to us, I think, the Wednesday after. We went 3 0. Yeah, and, and we just we teach them what we can actually do. So I think everything is rooted earlier. But that um, that period at the beginning of that January, you see the change in the team. And I think it's a belief that there's a belief that if you give it to a load of players, that here's this central defender, he's the most expensive central defender the world's ever seen. Everybody wants him. Real Madrid want him. Barcelona want him. City want him. He's coming to us because he believes in what we're doing. You give that to the other ten lads in the team. The other ten lads in the team know that they're quite good. And it's like you, like Adam was saying about um, the players that are better than you think. Klopp comes in the first season, goes, "Who've got right?" Okay, my lieutenant on the pitch is Adam Lallana. Adam Lallana is now going to Lallana. Um, Adam Lallana is now going to be the key to how we play initially because he will lead the press for me because he understands what I want. He likes intelligent players with a bit of skill. And if you want an intelligent player, Virgil Van Dijk is possibly one of the most intelligent players in world football at the moment. He just understands the entire nature of the game. So at that point, we start. I, I, I can't say we start transforming because I think this is an endless transformation. I think we've also won Klopp's keys as well as knowing what he's got is knowing, as you said, not knowing what we don't know, but also knowing what we don't for, know for five years down the line. So when people are going, why haven't you bought this, this and this? He's going, well, I bought over and I've bought... Mm. Above Vandenberg and I've got Harvey Elliott and I've got Ryan Bruce. So he knows what the next five years of Liverpool look like. He's got a longer term vision than any of us actually watching the game have. Um, that the four three and then the five one across the two legs. I think Joel, what it does is it sets the scene for the basically for the for the year and a bit that have followed uh, up to this point. This idea that it tells Liverpool the story that it tells those players the story you're not it's not a conversation about whether or not you're as good as them you are as good as them there's proof that you're as good as them in fact you're better than them you've beaten them on these occasions it's saying that we need to get all the other stuff right all the other stuff that goes on you know and it, it's not the nature of the victories it wasn't the Danny Murphy Gerard Houllier snatching smashing grabbers at Old Trafford it was you know in the 4-0 the 4-3 and the 3-0 outplayed them and then outplayed them in the second half of the Etihad I think all of that acts as a springboard to Liverpool as they are now in terms of belief I think so. What's interesting about the, especially the Champions League tie, the way we went 3-0 up and then held out so well at Anfield from 3-0 up and then when City got the early goal at the Etihad and we defended kind of, we were holding on, clinging on for dear life at points there. But I think that kind of showed as much as Liverpool, everybody knew that we could score goals and attack, that there was the kind of the bones of a really solid defensive team and you saw that actually put in place for the whole of that 2018-19 season, which is what ultimately allowed us to compete with them uh, in the title race and I think what's really interesting now if you look back at last season and the progression where we became a much more controlled probably slightly more defensive oriented team than we were beforehand there was more balance to where we are now where we seem to sort of we're not keeping as many clean sheets but we seem to have combined all the components of the previous four years into one sort of I don't know super team basically it's all the best elements of Klopp's Liverpool so far in this current team and I think that's what you see. We've arrived at this point where he's accumulated all of his experience and what has worked and what hasn't worked from his four years so far. 
and we're seeing that put into practice um, every week at the moment. And I think one thing that occurred to me when we were speaking there uh, in terms of progression and, and what lies ahead for the future, I remember reading, there's a chapter in Soconomics, I don't know if you read the book, yeah. um, and there's a whole chapter on basically, it's a study of what makes the most successful teams in history successful. And one of the most consistent factors is continuity and keeping a core group of players together. And it feels like for the first time, probably in my lifetime really watching Liverpool, we've kept a core of mostly, if, if, if not world-class, among the best in their position in the world together for, this is about their third year, most of them. Yeah. And I think that's what we're now seeing is despite the lack of transfers, um, you're seeing that that continuity is leading to, to where we are now. I think it's also his vision of what a player can be rather than what a player is because the players he's brought in are players that City probably wouldn't look at. Obviously, Fabino, we know City looked at and he was very closely linked to them. So, Fabino comes in, everybody looks in the first game, goes, he's probably not going to make in the Premier League. And he turns out within three games being an absolute Rolls Royce for a player and so influential on what we do. I think he's an absolutely majestic footballer. But most managers at the very top level aren't throwing an 18-year-old kid in at right back and going, yeah, you can do the job. Or buying a lad who's just been relegated with Hull for left back. Or buying Genie Wijnaldum and saying, yeah, you're number 10. Do you know what? My play is centre-back every so often. <laughs> and um, and you can definitely do the holding role, but you're going to do this role that I've invented. So take Bobby Firmino and go, do you know what? We're going to we're gonna create a whole new position in football just for you. Or play because, James Milner at left back for a whole season. Yeah, yeah. and make it work. And he, So he's got this vision of what a player can actually contribute to the whole. So he, he's seeing the entirety. And this is one of the things um, I was saying after the first half of the Leipzig game, the vision and intelligence of this football team is unparalleled at the moment. After the second half was a different matter altogether, but the, the vision of what the team can do itself is unreal. There's there's a flip side to that though, Adam, as you begin to sort of look ahead, and we'll sort of round this up now because I think this is a conversation that can go on into next week. But there is a mild concern in that because this is such a big season for these players, you know, you look at the age range of players Liverpool have used so far this season in terms of minutes on the pitch, it's around 27.6. The league average is about 26. The only players he's used under the age of 25 are Joe Gomez, sparingly so far, and Trent Alexander-Arnold in terms of both league and Champions League. No one else has had a sniff. And there is a tiny little thing here where, rightly, this isn't a criticism, but he's he's almost got to ride these lads out through this season. And then we may well be having a tiny little bit of a transitional conversation in that you can't just keep going back to the well with the same lads over and over and over again. And it's difficult for them because there's so much on the line in every game to do pathways for Elliot, for Brewster, for... And he hasn't even got that many players aged between 21 and 24. This is very much a 25 to 29 squad. It is. I think there is something, it'll be interesting to have that conversation again post-Christmas, you know, maybe sort of February time and where, where we're at, because I think that, I think I think he's basically seen Pep Guardiola's City side win the league by December and go, well, that's what, I'd quite like that. And, you know, that's what we're going to have to do to compete with City. As it happens, we've been, I'm, I'm not going to say fortunate, but we've, we've had the good luck of City dropping enough points to mean that we've built up a, a decent chunk of a lead already. But if we get to January, say, and we're still eight points ahead of them or, or, or around that kind of region, well, then he has got the ability to say, I'll put in I'll put in Brewster. Because, you, 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 you know, the thing that I was most interested by is in the summer, all the noises coming out of the club where we don't need a forward, 
Brewster's been going to be the one that's going to be used, and we've not seen him at all. He's basically fell off the face of the earth as far as this season, this season's concerned. Apart from doing all the really great social media videos and stuff, he's not he's not he's not in the team. He's not in the squad. But I bet you he will be in January. I bet you if if we're around there, because at the moment he's kind of going, I need these players, the ones who know what we're doing, know how to get us over the line. I need them to just keep putting wins on the board, put them on the board, put them on the board, and then we see where we are. And in January we'll have a little bit more if if things go as he wants them to go where we've kind of done a city and steamrolled everybody and we're, you know, eight points clear in, in January, February time, he's got the ability then to go, I'm going to use one or two of the younger players. Not loads of them, not all the time, not, but I'll have them on the bench. I'll put Brewster on for the last 10 minutes. Or if Lovren's ill, Gomez has picked up another muscle injury, well, I'm not going to be overly panicked about having to use Keanu Hoover, for example. So it'll be interesting, but obviously you're right. At the moment, he has got his players and... Sometimes people get disappointed when the team sheet's there and it's Fabinho, Henderson and Wijnaldum again or Milner and Wijnaldum or whatever. And people go, oh, God, they, blah, blah, blah. But Klopp knows what he's getting from them and he knows that, that they will deliver what he wants them to deliver. And that, obviously, is key to his idea of success. Okay, uh, thank you very much indeed. Right the way through to the, through the show, Adam, Ian, and Joel. Also, uh, thank you very much to John, uh, Jane, Emma, and uh, to Chris. It's been your weekend of this week. Whatever you do, and enjoy it. Podcast Network.